Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of just coming together as a church family and celebrating VBS and reflecting on just such uh, a sweet family, the Pilgrims, that you've blessed us with and saying goodbye. And um, thank you for time to open your word and sing to you and pray to you, Lord. We are just, we're grateful for all these things. And so now we just ask for your help as we open your word. Would you teach us? By your spirit, would you help us understand what we read and apply it to our lives? We love you, and uh, we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, hey, welcome, everybody, to FBC. Again, we're so glad that you are here. I want to invite you to join me in John chapter 17, verse 20, which is where we're going to be for the morning as we are continuing this sermon series, walking through the Gospel of John little by little. So if you need to, uh, you can grab a Bible on the seats in front of you. We're also going to have the words on the screen, so you can follow along there. Uh, John 17, again, verse 20. Uh, Larry Osborne is a pastor and author in San Diego, California, and he tells the story in one of his writings about being a first-time lead pastor, how he came out of seminary and he had all these ideas and all these strategies about how they're gonna, their church is going to grow and they're going to practice evangelism and reach the community and see all these exciting things come to pass. And as I was reading his story, you know, I could relate a little bit to being a young pastor, you know, coming out of seminary and your first lead pastor role. And there's a little bit of, you know, pride sometimes, unfortunately, that comes with it or overconfidence, right? Right. If people would just, if more people in the world would listen to me, then, you know, things would really get uh, sorted out around here. Um, and so Larry, you know, writes about that a little bit and uh, it's kind of dangerous, right? That's when you're, you're most dangerous, uh, because your confidence is really high, but your experience and wisdom is really low, right? And there's, there's a thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect. If you don't know about it, go Google it after the service, not now, but after the service, go Google the Dunning-Kruger effect. And you'll see this, this idea of confidence not being matched necessarily with your competency or your skills. But then what happens uh, to me and to Larry Osborne is that, you know, life smacks you around a little bit and it, it humbles you and you, you grow. And anyway, so uh, back to Larry Osborne and six months into his first lead pastor role, he realized that his church was just full of controversy, full of struggle. People weren't on the same page. People were leaving the church. The board couldn't get along. And he started to wonder, okay, what am I going to do next? Like once they asked for my resignation, you know, what's my next career going to be? Or what, are, what do I do if, if a fight breaks out at a church luncheon? You know, thinking through kind of wild scenarios like that. And it was in that season, a difficult season, that he realized that he had been overlooking a really key component to the health of the church. And the factor that he was overlooking was the importance of unity, the importance of unity within the church. See, before he thought, you know, we need to be on mission, right? We, it's almost selfish to talk about unity, to turn inward and look at one another because right, we have a world to reach, right? Worship, connect, grow, and go. There's a mission, right? We got to let our community know about Jesus. So let's get to it. We don't have time to kind of slow down and, you know, sing Kumbaya and look at one another in the eye and make sure things are, you know, we're on the same page. But he realized you know what? We're never going to change the world out there if we can't get along in here. And so for, for the next few years after that, Larry and their leadership team worked tirelessly for two and a half years on unity on their board and within their church. 
And ever since, unity has been a priority at North Coast, their church down there, uh, ever since. Now, this connects to us because we realize unity in the church wasn't Larry Osborne's idea. You know, he didn't didn't come up with it or make it up. Uh, Really, we can go back to the words and prayer of Jesus in John 17 and see his heart for the church. So you already heard it read aloud, but look at again how he starts verse 20. This is Jesus. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Okay, a, a little bit of context, right? So we don't just helicopter in. We got to look at, okay, what else is going on around this verse? We're here at the end of John 17. Jesus, at the start of chapter 18, he's about to be arrested. He's about to uh, go to the cross. And so we've seen for a little while now, these last moments he's having with his disciples. And in John 17 specifically, we see this prayer, this prayer he has to his father, for his disciples. And you notice uh, we saw last week how he's praying that his, his disciples would be kept, uh, that uh, God the Father would protect them, keep them on mission, use them in the world and all these days ahead. But you notice that he's not just praying for his immediate disciples there with him, right? He's praying for his future followers, right? Verse 20, doesn't it say that? Uh, my prayer is not for them alone, not these you know, guys in the room with me right now, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Right, that's, that's us. You realize that? You know, th- those who will believe through the message of the apostles, that's believers today, right? The, the message of the apostles, the message of the gospel was passed down and preserved generation after generation uh, all the way to modern day, to our time. And so we didn't just make this stuff up, right? It wasn't like me and, you know, our pastoral leadership team. We like a few weeks ago had too much espresso one morning and we came up with this whole, you know, Jesus thing and this church idea. No, we, we have these roots going back to Jesus himself and the apostles. And of course, stretching back even into the Old Testament beyond, But my point is that Jesus here is praying for his disciples, his future followers. And so we get to see, listen in on his heart for us today. Look what he says. Uh, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Verse 21, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So as we read through those verses, you see right away what the theme services, what the repeated idea, and it's, it's a prayer for unity. That the followers of Jesus would be one. He says that they would be brought to complete unity. So if you're a note taker, point number one we see in this prayer is a call to unity. Jesus is praying for his future church that disciples, followers of his would be unified, perfectly one with a, a shared purpose, a shared heart, a shared vision, a shared action in the world, a shared commitment to the mission of God and to one another. And it's really a remarkable prayer if, if you think about it. It's a high call because unity is not easy, is it? And just think back to this moment, Jesus with his disciples here in the first century, and think about all that would be ahead for the church. 
as, as the message of the gospel spreads throughout the world, God reconciling the world to himself, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation, think about the challenges that that would create, the cultural issues that they would bump up against, the linguistic issues of just simple communicating with people, uh, the, the racial and ethnic challenges to being one big unified family. I mean, just think about how messy your family is today. Like, just let's just, you know, simplify this. Think about your family. And when you go to a family gathering, think about the complexity that's present there, right? And the potential conflict that's there, right? Doesn't it stress some of us out to go to a family gathering? Like, man, Aunt Mildred's going to be there. And I really hope no one mentions, you know, blank around her because then she's going to be on a soapbox for, you know, 30 minutes about that. I really hope Uncle, Uncle Harry doesn't start, you know, on his, you know, hobby horse talking about this. Or, man, some people show up early and you're like, I'm still getting ready and they're already here. And some people like won't leave when it's all done. You're like, I really want to get on with my day, but they're still here. And some people chew too loud or some people have, you know, just strange opinions, right? Strange, strange opinions about important things, maybe really, you know, really uh, controversial things or, you know, they have offensive humor or, or whatever. Or some, you know, young people are in the corner making a TikTok video, not even engaging with the family or some people don't know how to cook and you just, you know, you eat their food anyways because you want to make them feel good. Right? There's all this complexity just in your family. And relatively, you know, speaking, on a global scale, your family is pretty similar, right? Your, your family are pretty alike when you think about, like, on a global scale. And so think about the complexity that gets added when around the table we add people from, uh, many people from different countries all over the world, different languages all over the world, different cultural values and expectations and uh, commitments and so on. You see the, the, the challenge then to be one unified whole family, one people of God with all of that diversity? And yet it's, it's the heart of God for his church. Now we have to make a few you know, explanations here. First, uni- unity does not mean uniformity. Okay, let's be clear there. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that our differences and our distinctions necessarily disappear or, you know, go away that our, our distinct individuality gets absorbed into this one kind of amorphous blob. And it's like, hey, welcome to FBC. You know, if you want to be a member here, sign this. We're going to shave your head, put you on a bus to Montana for initiation. And then we're going to make sure you come back all thinking the same, acting the same, dressing the same, sounding the same. And we'll become clones. That's not, we don't have a bus. And we don't have any connections in Montana. Don't worry. Okay, so it's not that because we see in the Bible... Right, like in a number of ways, our distinctions will remain. Different races and ethnicities, tribes and tongues will still be noticeable. Specific gifts and skills are going to differ. Uh, men and women, right, gender will still be noticeable. There's, there's distinction, and yet there's to be a profound unity in the church. Unity with distinction. Now, how do we know that's true? I'm not not just making this up. Look at verse 21. What does Jesus say? His prayer is that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So the model for this unity, the example of this unity that Jesus points out is God himself, right? That in our one God that we worship, there are three distinct persons. The father is not the son and the son is not the father and the spirit is not the father and the spirit is not the son and so on. Distinct persons, yet one God. There's one that we worship. 
And so if, if that is kind of the model or the example that Jesus gives of unity, then for the church, we will remain distinct individuals with our quirks and differences and different ways that God has made us. And yet we can be one with a shared heart, a shared vision, a shared purpose, a shared mission and presence in the world. And so if this is the heart of Jesus for his church, he prays that his church would be one. We have to, you know, do some evaluation. How are we doing there? You know, a scale of one to 10, 10 being really unified, one not, you know, how, how are we doing? It's kind of a hard question to answer because, I mean, as we look historically, right, there have been uh, major divisions in the church, right? Followers of Jesus have divided or broken off from one another for different reasons. Some of them necessary, um, some of them silly and unnecessary, but even like think past that to the modern day, right? Fast forward to, to our day and think about all the, the turbulence of the last few years, right? Think about COVID, about how, how politically polarized our country is, uh, the racial tensions of the past few years, right? Think about all the, the hurdles to unity that have been present there and the way, sadly, uh, some of us as believers have divided. And we've seen that, that today, some are more united around their political ideology than their theology. And they raise their political banner higher than the Jesus banner. And so we need to consider, what does it say about us if we feel a deeper affinity with, a deeper connection with our political allies than our brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it say about us if there's closer heart ties with our political allies than our brothers and sisters in Christ? I think sadly in ways we've allowed cultural pressures or, you know, the news, your news outlet of choice for some of us to just kind of stoke the flames of division and turn us against one another. And what's resulted is we've spelled unity with a lowercase u. And so we need to come back to the heart of Christ for his church that, that we, though different, though distinct, would, would raise the Jesus banner higher than all the others. And, and as we consider this, it's important to talk about this, this unity, understand this unity that we're talking about, because we could go astray here in a number of different ways. One, we could think that, well, hey, we're talking about unity for the sake of unity. You know, like, all right, unity is now the only and highest value. And so we all just, you know, find ourselves here. And so we stick together no matter what, you know, like believe whatever you want, um, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. And we're just, you know, one big happy family. And yet there's, that's not exactly the picture that Jesus gives us here either. Right, so look at verse 21. Jesus prays for his followers, not only that they would be one, but that uh, he says, may they also be in us. May they also be in us. So, so realize that our unity, it, it's not like over here somewhere, like this abstract concept that like with or without Jesus, we're just going to, you know, you know, link arms together and we're going to be this one new family. Uh, the, our, our unity comes from, is grounded in, is only possible because of this shared commitment to Jesus, right? We're, we're, we're unified as the new family of God, new people of God, because we are in him. 
Right? May they be in us, Father, that our life, if you're a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, now you're joined to Jesus and your life is now bound to his. You have this new life in Christ. So may they be in us. And so we're united because we share in that simple gospel commitment. Now, think about this. A.W. Tozer wrote about this in his classic book, The Pursuit of God. Speaking about unity, he says this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You see the distinction? But this isn't a call just to pursue unity for the sake of unity. It's to, as we worship Jesus together, we then grow together in unity. As we worship and pray and serve and repent and seek him over and over, we'll be brought nearer together. And so this unity is amongst believers for the people of God. There's an invitation there, if you're not a believer, to trust in Jesus and join the family and receive the forgiveness of your sins in his name. And then, as a follower of Jesus, this is what we get to share. Now, as we talk about this unity, there's one other kind of qualifier we need to make, and that is that unity is not at the expense of dealing with sin, and this is what I mean by that. In some churches, tragically, there has been this insistence that, hey, even if you've been mistreated or sinned against or, or abused, that you need to kind of keep quiet for the sake of unity. Right? We need to, we don't want to stir up division. And so if you bring kind of accusations against leadership in certain church circles, it's like, well, that's, that's being divisive. We got to, you know, keep kind of a good united front presented. It's going to be bad PR, and so we need to just kind of bury that and move past it without really dealing with it. But we need to be really clear that a call to unity doesn't mean we bury issues. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with sin. Right? If, if we are being divisive or unnecessarily stirring up controversy in the church, yeah, that's a problem, and we should address that. But if, if, you've been, if you've been sinned against by leaders in the church, if you've been uh, abused by those in the church, by ungodly leadership, then bringing that to the light and holding people accountable for sin is not being divisive. Right? That's a necessary step. It, it's always the right decision to bring sin into the light for there to be accountability in the church. So please just hear me. Don't let someone tell you, uh, you know, keep quiet for the sake of unity. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. So uh, continue on with me. Verse 21. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus is praying for unity. If you're a note taker, point one, call to unity. 
point number two, we also see in the text the result of unity. The result, the, the outcome of this unity that's on display in the church. Verse 21 at the end, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Or take verse 23 again, I and them and you and me, so that they may, brought to, may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. You see that when the church is unified, the result of that unity is powerful evangelistic impact in the world. Now, I remember my youth group days back at Sun River Church in Sacramento, California. It's kind of a chubby, awkward 11, 12 year old. And I remember in youth group, we did this, this like course class book thing on becoming a contagious Christian. Does anyone remember that? Something like becoming a contagious Christian. Normally, becoming contagious is a bad thing, right? <laughs> COVID, what's up? But um, right now, um, in this sense, you know, being contagious would be considered a good thing. And I remember, you know, as this kind of goofy, awkward 11, 12 year old trying to learn about evangelism and how to, how to help other people follow Jesus, right? And share the gospel. And, and that, let me just be clear that's a, that's a really good impulse, right? We have our four commitments worship, connect, grow, go. So we're called to go out and engage the world with the gospel and share Jesus and invite other people to come to know Jesus. Uh, absolutely. But what I realized was with that course, the contagious Christianity stuff, I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember the impulse of the theme was like, it's pretty much about you as an individual, you know, going out. And this is kind of how we think about evangelism a lot and going out and, you know, sharing Jesus, talking with people. Um, or, you know, think about it, just think with me for a second about the evangelism material you've been familiar with, like a book or a training you went to, or maybe sermons you've heard on sharing the good news of Jesus. Often it's, it's very individualistic, right? It's about what you have to go and do. And here's how you can go talk to your friends without sounding like a weirdo and share Jesus and help them come to know him. Right. And again, that's absolutely part of the process, right? Like there's this call individually to, to make disciples and share the gospel and be witnesses and share our testimony. Like none of that's bad necessarily. But what I realize is we're, we're missing a key component to evangelism that Jesus really highlights here. He, he kind of gives us the formula. He, he tells us how it's going to happen. And, and what we've done is instead of making it about we, we've made it about me. And we just made it very individualistic how you can go talk about Jesus. But Jesus shows us here what, the, how is the church going to grow? How are people going to know that Jesus is real and that the father sent him? Verse 21 and 23. It's the unity of his people. Right? When they're brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me. So, so there's this we reality to evangelism. This collective calling to make Jesus known in the world. And that so often gets overlooked, right? Especially like, you know, church growth material again. Like, how, how do you grow your church? It's like marketing, you know, like website, good coffee out front, like energetic worship, you know, skinny jeans for the worship pastor. Yeah. I don't know if Ian's wearing skinny jeans today. We can check afterwards. And again, not, not necessarily bad things. Maybe the skinny jeans, I don't know. But the rest, you know, hey, having a good website and effective tools and communication, that's not bad. But again, sometimes we focus so much on like those sorts of metrics and steps that we forget. Jesus gave us the formula. So why, when we talk about church growth and evangelism, don't we talk more about unity? Right? You're about to complete unity. Then people will know. Then people will see. 
Because unity is so hard and it's so uncommon, right? The world's more divided than it's ever been. And so if a group of people, a diverse group of people can come together as one, then the world will take notice and say, well, that's, uh, that's something different. Right? The world should be able to look at the church and be like, you know what? That doesn't really make sense. <laughs> like the math here doesn't add up how you people are hanging out together. Like, it doesn't make sense that you guys would be friends or you guys would spend as much time together as you do, like young and old. And again, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different languages even represented. Like, how how does that work? It doesn't make sense. Jesus says, when the world looks at this, you know, ragtag group of followers known as the church, they're going to say, you know, there's got to be an explanation for this. And then we can say, well, there is. And his name is Jesus. He is who he says he is. He's the one that unifies us. And people will be drawn to that unity. So if we can live that out, if we can love one another, serve one another, be committed to one another, support one another, in the way we talk about one another, and encourage one another, the world will notice. The world is hungry for true unity and true community and a true picture of of, of mutual self-giving love. Jesus says, then the world will know that the Father sent me. Now, uh, we have to consider, this isn't directly in the text, but we have to move in this direction. How how do we take steps towards unity? You know, Jesus is clearly praying for unity. How do we we get there? What are some ways we could start to move that direction? So if you're a note taker, call to unity, results of unity, and now steps towards unity. A few thoughts. First step one, we can cultivate humility. That would be the first step I would prescribe because nothing kills unity faster than pride and ego. So we can learn to not take ourselves too seriously. Realize it's about the kingdom, not our little castles. I think it was Harry Truman who said, it's amazing what you can get done uh, when you don't care who gets the credit. I think it was Harry Truman. I Googled it. Maybe it was Abe Lincoln. There were conflicting sources. Somebody said it and it's true. So... There you go. All right, so our job, right, is to make much of Jesus, point people to Jesus, and then kind of fade into the background, right? And not worry about getting credit or being celebrated. It's about Jesus and encouraging other people, right? And even if you look at James, the book of James, chapter 4, verse 1, you know, he asks there as he's writing, what, what causes quarrels or conflict among you? And he points out it's your, your, your selfish desires. It's your selfish pursuits. You want things. There's pride. There's ego wrapped up in it. So you're focused on what you need, rather than the good of other people. And so you get angry and bitter and fight and all these things. So step one, we need to cultivate humility, humility, realize, you know, it's really not about me. And I don't need to make it about me. Uh, Second, we have to deal with our issues. So much of the division, I think, in our churches is because we're busy worrying about other people's sin and not enough about our own sin. Right, we want to take, uh, Jesus talked about this, how we want to take the speck out of our brother's eye, but don't realize about the log in our own. Larry Osborne, who we mentioned earlier, had this great line in talking about unity in the church. Uh, he said, you know, in the church, we need more mirrors and less binoculars. And that, that hit me really hard because I got a really nice pair of binoculars in my heart. And I can be really good at looking out at, at other people's issues 
you know, individually, this person is letting me down. Look at what this person's not doing. This person really should be doing that this way. Or even churches sometimes, right? As a pastor, well, our church is doing it this way or they're not doing it, whatever. And it's just, it's so toxic <clears throat> and it's wicked. And it's, uh, instead, you know, what God really says to me usually in those moments is like, yeah, you know, you might be right uh, about those concerns, but like, what about you? You know, can we, can we talk about you for a minute and, and the junk in your heart and the sin issues you need to repent of and deal with? And so for each of us, and God often would say, hey, look in the mirror and first let's deal with your, your greed or your pride or, or your sexual sin or your unforgiveness or your bitterness or whatever it might be. And when we do that, we can use our mirror rather than our binoculars is first it allows us to repent of our, of our sin, turn from our sin and start to walk in the ways of Christ more fully. That leads to life. But also then it's going to make us a lot more charitable with the people around us, right? Because if you're aware of your own need for grace, you're going to be a lot more willing to extend grace to other people. Right? When you realize how incredibly patient God has been with you, you'll be much more likely to be patient with other people. So we need to cultivate humility. We need to deal with our own issues or sin. And lastly, we need to practice triage which, um, you know, triage in, in the medical world, I'm not a nurse, but I, if, if I get this wrong, you know, medical people come correct me afterwards. But triage, I believe, is when, you know, in the ER, people come in with, with all kinds of different wounds. So like this guy got shot or, you know, this person is having a heart attack or this person can't breathe. Like that's really urgent. So we need to like move that to the front of the line, deal with that. And then this person, you know, got clawed by a cat or has a piece of glass stuck in their leg. So like, you know, important, but it can, you know, wait, let's make sure we got these other things dealt with first. Um, so in the same way, there's this idea of theological triage where we need to realize that um, there are some first order doctrinal issues that we've got to get right. Right? Not like... Issues that are not agree to disagree, you know, take it or leave it, but like central to being a Christian are certain doctrines such as uh, the, the Trinity, right? The deity of Christ, the reality of the resurrection, the authority of scripture, right? So like things in that category, like, these are gospel issues. Like if we get this wrong, uh, we're really going to get way off track. So we really got to make sure that we're on the same page here, right? First order sort of issues, gospel issues. Um, then there are other issues that are not of the same weight and importance. Not that they're unimportant, not that it's like, yeah, who, who cares after that? There's still right, things we have to uh, move towards in scripture. And yet they can have different, you know, degrees of significance. Kind of, they can be in-house debates, right? Where, where we can say, hey, Christians of good faith might see this a little differently. And, and we can kind of talk about why we see it differently and try to go back to the text and really, we want to get it right. But, but people at the end of the day might view it a little differently. Things like, hey, when is Jesus going to come back? Or exactly what are the like, end times going to look like? You know, we can agree to disagree on that. Let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. I have my opinion, but like, that's not, you know, a barrier to fellowship. Um, things like even Calvinism and Arminianism, exactly how we see that whole debate going, uh, church leadership structures, things like that, or even like how, what a church worship service looks like, right? Some are going to be more charismatic and expressive in certain ways. Others are like, mm, you know, we're going to don't lift the hands. We're just going to sing the song. Down. So, you know, there's some differences there. And so we can say, Hey, within our church, we can carry ourselves a little differently and we can even partner with other churches, right? Where we have alignment on the primary issues 
And we might view the secondary issues a little different, but we can still work together. Okay, so practicing triage means we need to major on the majors, right? Draw firm lines where there are gospel issues, um, non-negotiables, and then be willing to, right, have, have warm, loving fellowship with brothers and sisters who might see some secondary issues or third-tier uh, issues differently. So... That could be a much longer conversation, and some people might even you know, disagree on what goes into each of those categories, first, second, third tier, that sort of thing. But we should learn to say, hey, not everything, bottom line, is a um, you know, primary issue. There are some things we can, can talk about within the camp. So, call to unity, result of unity, steps toward unity, lastly, the basis for unity. We see this in the closing verses, verse 24 on Father. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Friends, wrapped up in these closing verses is the basis for our unity, and that's really the gospel. We see so many foundational uh, truths here in these closing verses. First, Jesus' heart that we would be with him, the desire that they would be with me where I am. We see uh, the glory of Jesus, that we are to see him for who he truly is and understand who he is. We see that Jesus came to make the father known in the world, who God is and what he is like. Verse 26 talks about the love of the father for the son, that that same love might be poured out into our hearts as well, which is really amazing when you think about it. The very love of God being in us. And so as we've mentioned before, it's, it's these foundational truths, these gospel truths that make us this new family centered on Jesus, this new identity in Christ, this new humanity through faith in him. And all that's made possible, right? The love of God being poured into our hearts, us being with Jesus where he is. It's all made possible because of his work on the cross, right? We're reconciled through his blood. We're brought back into the family of God because he was cast out and Jesus died on the cross for your sin and for mine. So that whoever trusts in him is forgiven of their sin, given a new heart, adopted into the family of God. And so it's these gospel truths, friends, that make us family. I encourage you, if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never surrendered and turned from your sin and and cast yourself on his mercy, then would today be the day when you said yes to Jesus? And committed to following him and repenting of your sin and finding new life in him and his love. Now, it really is fitting that we are in John 17 here at the end while we're just wrapping up VBS this week. Because I feel like, as you've already heard parts of this, but VBS was such a beautiful picture of the unity that we're talking about this morning. I can't tell you how encouraged I was just to be here day after day and see so many of you 
running around in orange t-shirts, serving together. It was such a joy and probably is going to be the highlight of the summer because it was, Jesus is talking here, right? About this group of people, the church who are going to be different in a lot of ways, right? They might come from different places in the world, different languages, different backgrounds, right? Men, women, different ages, young, old, uh, different hobbies or probably political persuasions or whatever else. And yet because of this commitment to Christ, there's this unity that they are to share. And so just think about that, our VBS team. I think our VBS team was a great picture of that. Right? We have over 50 adults serving. We have uh, middle school and high school students. We have uh, retired people. We have you know, every age group in between. We have men and women. Some of us got you know, spray bottles and megaphones. <laughs> Others weren't entrusted with that great responsibility. Right? We had different skills, different roles, serving in different ways. Uh, some of you, just the crew leaders. I was, so I, as the you know, games leader, Andrew and I out there, we got like little breaks here and there throughout the morning. But crew leaders, like you guys were just nonstop running around with the kids for three hours. Why did you sign up for that? That's crazy. <laughs> And I know for a fact on our team, right? As I looked around, I, 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 know, I know you guys, and I know there's different political leanings on our team, right? And different hobbies and interests, or people vote differently, view things differently, read different books, whatever. And, and yet, there we were for a week, serving alongside one another because of this shared commitment to Christ and his mission, making him known in the world, sharing the love of Jesus with our community, inviting kids, boys and girls, and their families to come to know Jesus. Like what, what an incredible way to step into the mission of God here in our city. Right? And wouldn't it have been possible if it weren't for your willingness to serve and the unity then that we shared that week, right? We're running this fantastic VBS. Like what if the kids came and they were like, we all were just like at each other's throats and not talking to each other and not, they would be like, this is terrible. Like, I, I don't want to be a part of this family. And yet there was this beautiful unity on display. So thank you and well done. And let's continue to, to strive that direction. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you and we are just humbled before you this morning and aware of our great need for you. We just remember, in, again, in the songs that we've sang and uh, the realities we've talked about this morning is how we were, we were lost. Um, God, we were just rebels running away from you and yet you came, Jesus, and you died for us while we were your enemies, while we wanted nothing to do with you. You came to save us and died for us and invited us into your family. Thank you. And Jesus, we pray, uh, I guess, along with you in this prayer for, for unity in the church, that we would be a people marked by the supernatural love and commitment to one another, rooted in the gospel and in our identity as your people. I pray that we'd share this, this warmth and love with one another. I pray that we would be a people marked by just an uh, incredible uh, love and encouragement for other churches in our city that are sharing the gospel, that we, Lord, would be just unified in Christ. Help us, Lord. We need your help. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.